Hello, this is Frank Falvey, and the program name is Toward a More Perfect Union. And union not only refers to uh, the state and maybe federal government, but the union also refers to citizens and individuals. So the topics that we are bringing up and will be bringing up will be in a wide-ranging, sometimes uh, frivolous, Pete's fifth uh, freedom. <laughs> uh, so we are looking forward uh, to uh, any comments uh, that you may have on, on the program. Today, we are to have a more perfect union. Uh, the Constitution of the United States is uh, always a, a thing in flux and interpretation in flux. We're going to discuss two two distinct topics. One is how we should elect the president and vice president of the United States of America. And secondly, how would rank voting play in elections in the United States of America? Our panel is, as usual, PJ, Dr. Walker Jones. Hello. Representative Jeff Roy. Good day. And Natalia Linos. Hi, everyone. To start the program, I would like to read from the Constitution of the United States. Always a good read. (laughs) Always a good read. Article 2, Section 1. I like to start with we the people. (laughs) Uh, Each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature therefore may direct a number of electors equal to the whole number of senators and representatives to which the state may be entitled in the Congress. But no senator or representative or person holding an office of trust or profit under the United States shall be appointed an elector. The electors shall meet in their respective states and vote by ballot for two persons, one of whom at least shall not be an inhabitant of the same state with themselves. And they shall make a list of all persons voted for and of the number of votes for each, which list they shall sign and certify and transmit sealed to the seat of the government of the United States, directed to the president of the Senate. The president of the Senate shall in the presence of the Senate and House of Representatives open all the certificates and the vote shall then be counted. The person having the greatest number of votes shall be the president. If such number be a majority of the whole number of electors appointed, And if there be more than one who have such a majority and have an equal number of votes, then the House of Representatives shall immediately choose by ballot one of them for president. And if no person have a majority, then from the five highest on the list, the said House shall in like manner choose the president. But in choosing the president, the vote shall be taken by state, 
the representatives from each state having one vote. A quorum for this purpose shall consist of a not of member or members from two-thirds of the states, and a majority of all the states shall be necessary to cho choice. In every case, after the choice of the president, the person having the greatest number of votes of the electors shall be the vice president. But if there should remain two or more who have equal votes, votes the Senate shall choose from them by ballot the vice president. Who would like to jump in? Well, those are the starting blocks. Um, <laughs> uh, it's also interesting to note that the Electoral College has been modified on several different occasions. The 12th Amendment of 1804 uh, modified the rules for election. It was possible, and it did happen for the president to be from one party and the vice president from another. And that was addressed in the 12th Amendment. The great compromise known as the Sherman Compromise of 1787 uh, put forward popular apportionment in the House, but with an elector per each Senate. And that was based on Senate representation in Article 5 of the Constitution. No state without its consent shall be deprived of its equal suffrage in the Senate. And that was uh, an element. Um, then, of course, we know of the fame, the infamous three-fifths compromise regarding the popular tally's inclusion of slaves. The 14th Amendment of 1866, uh, Thaddeus Stevens uh, delivered a speech on the amendment's intent, where the second section one, uh, he considered the most important in the article, uh, fixing the basis of representation in Congress and um, to compel the states to grant universal suffrage which is an interesting one because universal suffrage was reinterpreted at that time to be anything but. So that's an interesting turn of phrase. Um, most recently, uh, the 23rd Amendment in 1961 added Washington, D.C., and even within the past two years, the Buy-Seller Amendment, which originally began in 1968, which was endorsed by Nixon, ended up uh, passing in the House, going through filibuster and cloture twice in the Senate, ultimately to be tabled. Uh, there was the Carter proposal in 1977 to revisit that. And in these last two years, the buy-seller amendment has been basically revisited by more than one joint resolution, absent the original 40% minimum vote requirement. So basically what we're talking about is a background where the notion regarding the status of the Electoral College is very much in play and very much in discussion, you know, considering that, you know, the elections in 1876, 1888, 2000, and 2016 produced an Electoral College winner that did not receive a plurality of the nationwide popular vote. So that's a little more background on everything. I, I, my goal here is simply you know, while we all remain confused, to to at least get us confused on a far higher plane. Well, I'm going to bring it down to basics. Okay. All right. <laughs> there are 538 electors in Massachusetts, which comprises what? The 435 members of the House of Representatives, plus the 100 senators, uh, plus uh, it, Washington, D.C., would probably supply how many? Three. 
three. Okay. So, I mean, and it's, it is amazing how this does derive into a topic of conversation, but usually only devolves into a topic of conversation when people talk about uh, faithless electors and people not adhering to the uh, popular vote in their right. state. And uh, I think we have all heard that the magic number is 270 to yep. win. And how do we get to the number 270? Well, if you divide 538 by two, that gives you 269. So if both candidates get 269, you have a tie. And that goes back to what Frank was talking about. But once you reach the magic number of 270, uh, you're there. And in the case of uh, Joe Biden, uh, it's he's got 306. And the ballots are going to be cast on December 14th, 2020. Um, I actually had the honor and pleasure of sitting in for the meeting of the electors in 2016. Uh, a gentleman from Medway, one of my constituents, happened to be one of the electors in Massachusetts. Uh, and it was uh, a ceremony that actually takes place in the chamber of the House of Representatives. And uh, watching the folks uh, cast their ballots was, uh, is an, was an extraordinary experience. Uh, we don't have to deal with faithless electors in mm -hmm. Massachusetts. It's not something that uh, is really on our radar screen, but um, you know, it's a constitutional process. Um, it was designed to allow the smaller populated states to uh, have a greater voice um, in the outcome of the presidential election. Uh, and it's led to a lot of uh, a lot of discussions about whether that's still uh, relevant in 2020 as it may have been in 1787. So uh, I just wanted to throw out a few of the the basics that are there and uh, well, I'm going to I'm going to engage. <laughs> well, I'm going to get even more basic uh, because, albeit we may uh, believe that. Uh, the the founding fathers had this wonderful best interest at heart and it was a reasonable debate unfortunately it was not uh and so what we have to what we have to figure out is why was it that they debated because no one had tried a system of sort of uplifting the citizenry to electing the ultimate chief officer of their country before, okay? Uh, in most instances, it was that you would, especially in a representative form, have the representatives to decide amongst themselves who would become their leader. Uh, and that was part of the discussion. In other words, should Congress elect the president? Uh, but all of these were men who knew that there was corruption in the hearts of some people. And they debated this for months. Um, most of them then turned away from, well, no, we really don't want Congress to decide who our ultimate penultimate leader is. Uh, so why don't we do it through just popular vote? They did discuss that. Uh, and the question there was, well, if we did that, the states with the largest populations would dominate, right? 
because yeah. you're only looking at 13 at that point. Mm-hmm. And if between, let's say, the new uh, uh, what we now call New England, if the New England states decided that they were going to vote as a block against the southern states, say bringing up a favorite son. Yeah, you know, yeah, they, you know, they would just overwhelm. So they said, well, wait a minute, how can we make sure or try to make sure that everybody has some kind of equal vote here? The unfortunate part is everything we've discussed so far is probably not in the minds, nor in the hearts, nor in the lexicon of the general population of the United States. True. That is where we are so unfortunate. Because the next piece I'm about to say is that amongst the compromise as to how the electors were going to be chosen uh, or how, no, how the president was going to be chosen in this system of electors, the prejudices and the economic wealth of those people who were framing the Constitution came into play. So those who saw it as an economic detriment to them because they were going to be controlled, and now I'm talking about the southern states, they were going to be controlled by, especially in those parts of the Constitution, when you look at how you decide, like, uh, how many representatives you have to the House of Representatives, okay? They said, whoa, wait a minute. Our population, if you look at it 100%, is is comprised of 40% of enslaved people. We want them counted. Because that way we get more representatives, even though those people who are enslaved couldn't vote. Now, they were not the only ones who couldn't vote. So when you look at the total population, women couldn't vote. Native Americans who lived in those particular places couldn't vote. People who were uh, not landowners originally couldn't vote. Okay, so the people who could vote was a small minority of folks compared to the larger group. But at the same time, the founders believed that, well, we ought to count everyone when we're looking at who should be represented, because you are representing everybody who lives in your area. Therein lies, I think, what I would call one of the fallacies then of our electoral system. But the electoral college itself was designed so that There was no sort of impedance, if you will, to the idea that those in power were going to control who was going to be the president. So let's so that's another piece of the premise too. let me throw out. And again, maybe even not the league can break it down even more closer. But that gets us closer than to some of the sentiments, I think, of real people. Number one, folks don't know, uh, you know, really how this system works. And right now. The binary choice is we have the electoral college or you use the popular vote. And most people just center around, oh, well, why don't we just do it by popular vote? And I will say before I relinquish the floor that I'm not necessarily uh, enamored with just having the popular vote either. (laughs) I just want to, you know, I do want to bring in the perspective of the voter, though. And the popular vote is the most Um, logical one for them, right? If you live in a state and you know, for example, we're in Massachusetts, that it will be a democratic state. I have heard so many people saying, well, my vote doesn't count. It doesn't matter. And, you know, last week we talked about civics and this political apathy that is basically a consequence, a result of this system is something we need to talk about. 
because we don't want political apathy. We don't want people to say, my vote doesn't count, therefore I am not participating, because then you don't participate in elections where your vote does count, you know, down ballot, you just don't show up. And that is a problem that we need to acknowledge. And I like, Michael, that you start by saying that there is, you know, we, we like to imagine this, you know, our, our founders being, uh, you know, not fallible, these amazing, and, and to say, well, this system was broken from the beginning. You know, you were excluding so many people. So we can't imagine that democracy was born, you know, I, I come from Greece. So we talk about Greece being, you know, the the birthplace of democracy, but there too, only some people could vote. You know, we need to today contextualize what the intention was and what the consequences have been. And I do think the consequence of voter apathy is one that we can't ignore. You know, it's remarkable to me when I think of um, the elections that we have. So we have basically three levels of elections. We have a presidential election, we have a state election, and we have a local election. And uh, when you talk about apathy, the thing that amazes me the most is that we see the greatest voter turnout in those years that we have a presidential election. Then the second tier is the state election. And then the third tier is the local election. And, and Franklin, as a matter of fact, had a local election on Saturday. And despite the fact that over 6,000 ballots were mailed to people who had requested uh, a mail-in ballot, only 3,400 were returned, and only 800 people showed up on a Saturday to vote, mm -hmm. which was to make it more accessible. So you had a turnout of approximately 18% for a local election where the people who were, uh, or the person who was elected in that particular race touches your life much more significantly than the other two tiers of, of uh, elections. And it always puzzled me that people said, well, I'm turning out for the presidential because that's a very significant vote. Well, you're right, Natalia, in Massachusetts, the presidential vote um, is not as significant uh, as your vote in a local election, but we have this level of, of, of voter apathy that just uh, is astounding. And I, I wonder what the, uh, what the real solution is. You know, well, here's, here's a possible solution. Okay. Maine and one other state do it. They vote by congressional district. And I imagine the, the two state electors are by statewide majority vote. But if we went to a format that every state would vote by congressional district, you would still somewhat have the same problem that some congressional districts are going to be overwhelmingly Democrat or Republican. But you're going to spread out through the country many more districts that are going to be up for grabs. And so the money in the concentration and the attention is going to be much more diverse, and people are going to, I, I hope, feel much more closer to that their vote would matter. I think that's uh, an interesting one, and, and that's part of what I think I was alluding to earlier, in that how do you increase the granularity uh, of the effective vote? And that's one good way to pursue it. 
where the the count at the end of the day is now much more granular and and a much closer approximation to the popular vote. How do we vote. get people to show up for local elections that deeply impact and touch their life, you know, in a very significant way? It's it, it continues well, you to know, amaze me. Well, you know, let's let's talk about the uh, uh, the real elephant but in the room. And this may come as a shock to some of our listeners, but uh, it's not of the best interest to both of our parties, the Democrats and the Republicans, for massive turnout. And I say that uh, in all sincerity because, and again, and I also say that too, as a person who has run political campaigns. I run for, I've been a campaign manager for Republicans as well as Democrats, as well as nonpartisan. And here's why it's not in the best interest of the political parties to have massive turnout. Because when I want to win as a candidate, I take a look at the lay of the land. That is, I look at the electorate. I take a look at how the electorate is built around Republicans and Democrats. In other words, how many Republicans are there? How many Democrats? How many independents? I then take a look at past elections and I take a look at turnout. And what I want to do as a political strategist is to make sure that I can turn out as many of the people who I know will, one, affiliate with the party that I'm trying to represent, and two, affiliate with the issues that my candidate will espouse. And three, that's all I want to turn out. If I can suppress the other side, it's in my best interest to do that. It is not in my best interest, as Republicans have shown, to have Democrats turn out in mass. And the same is actually true for Democrats. It's not really to our best interest to have Republicans turn out in mass. And we fight against it. We talk about that. Well, I, so I would say I will quarrel with that a bit. Because oh, please do <laughs> that works in uh, a situation, um, you know, a, a typical state election. It doesn't answer the question and doesn't address the question as to why we don't have people turning out for local elections, particularly in a community like Franklin, which is a nonpartisan race. So party has no bearing on what is going on in that election. It we still see a dramatic increase. And in, in, in fact, the election that took place in November of 2020, the turnout was like 74% in Franklin. Yeah. And then four weeks later, it's down to 18% in a local election where party had absolutely nothing to do with it. I, for one, would, uh, I want high voter turnout. And, and I was thrilled with the 75% turnout that we had uh, in Franklin. And I was thrilled that people got a real taste for voting. But I would like to see 75% in every election. <laughs> in local. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, but, but I think, but I think uh, uh, you know, look, if we're, if we're intellectually honest, though, with ourselves, and I know this is what I'm trying to be here, Part of the reason why we have a low turnout in a nonpartisan race is because it's a nonpartisan race. We don't have people competing against one another across organized lines. 
In other words, that 74% was driven in large part because Democrats and Republicans were literally fighting for every single vote they could get. And that means that they are taking and trying to move and trying to move the electorate. Take that away. And what we see is what I think Natalita pointed to, which is suddenly we're back to the voter left to his or her own devices are very apathetic or very non-engaging. Okay, you know, there's nothing really at competition here. So whoever wins, eh, that's okay even though it's the most important election. You're absolutely right, Jeff, that it's the most important election that impacts them and a citizen of Franklin, you know, that they have voted on in the last, uh, you know, in the last couple of months. But Michael, a couple of things. One is particularly in state races, uh, there is no designation on the signs as to who is a Republican or who is a Democrat. They're not advertising that. Even when they campaign, it's not a campaign as a Republican or Democrat. It's a campaign of uh, personality. I mean, we saw that in the uh, local election here that a, a town, present town councilor uh, ran as, as a Republican and yet had never been a part of the Republican Party. Jack Roy had an opponent who had never, ever been part of a Republican Party. And, and let me point out one other thing, Jeff. I'm old enough that I used to vote at town meetings here in Franklin, where it was difficult to get a quorum of 50 people. My impression is that people are absolutely, literally scared of voting on matters that are going to affect themselves because, one, either they don't really know the issue or they really want someone else that may have more knowledge than them to do it in their place because they don't want to they don't want to take votes that would directly affect them well i certainly will agree with that interpretation because having voted on a school committee having voted on a town council and having voted as a state representative i can tell you that i'm called upon to make some very difficult and tough decisions and take some tough votes and i take my licks I take my chops from people who who will complain about how I voted on a particular issue, but I can tell you this, in each instance, when I vote on something, I can guarantee you it's well-researched and I've considered both sides of the issue and I take my job very seriously. Uh, It was interesting to me because we just did the, uh, the police reform vote that we put on the governor's desk. And uh, I was called by uh, uh, someone who wanted to debate the bill with me. And uh, we went through for about 45 minutes debating that bill, point after point after point. And it got back to me because the the gentleman had called uh, one of my colleagues and he said, I just got off the phone with, uh, with Representative Roy and I can tell you one thing, he knows that bill inside out. That's not an easy thing to do, to take 129 pages of legislation and understand it. And, and, you know, that's why people elect a representative to go in. And, and you ought to represent somebody who will do that work that, you know, some, you know, not everybody in life wants to do that type of work. 
I happen to enjoy it. And I can, I know that my, uh, my compadres on this program enjoy it because otherwise they would not have run for office as well. I would, I would add, by the way, you touched on a key point. It takes work. Um, and I would round that out by saying it takes work just to know the candidates. When you consider the four candidates that were running for the special election on town council, the candidates all have the task to be recognized, open, notorious, call it what you will, but they've got to get out there and develop name recognition. And they, they need to penetrate and compete with all the other advertising, commercial messages, what you have every single day, and find a way to get known. I will say that the winner, Colby Frangillo, uh, really worked very hard at it. Um, uh, and, you know, that, that effort bore fruit. Um, the issue also is getting people to reach out and do the work of getting to know the candidates. And, and whereas in a presidential election, you get bombarded with a jillion messages of why the other guy is horrible and why our guy is great with respect to the party. Think about the hundreds of millions of dollars that gets spent on a presidential election. And also, too, the amount of money that gets spent on senatorial elections. So we know these people because the media, both paid, earned, and unearned, really gets those names out there and starts to position them. And so that becomes a very active process on the sending side. The opportunity to do the active process on the sending side at the local level, at the zip code level, is very limited. Um, and so that is in part, I think, one of the issues in that plain old ignorance of the candidates, you know, is, is one of the generators of some of the apathy. I would love to hear Natalia talk about her campaign because you had a baseball team uh, running, nine people running for that seat. And I would love to hear your thoughts on that very point. The thundering herds. Yeah, no, and I think it's a really important, a really important point because one is that there are many candidates, and therefore, how do people distinguish between candidates? One is, uh, and maybe this is a good transition to ranked choice voting. Whether you think the candidate who you actually like has a chance of winning, there is this notion of, uh, you know, a voter trying to do both, trying to identify who they like the most, and then having to guess whether that candidate has a real shot at it. And that extends to whether we're talking about a local race, a congressional race, or most importantly, at the presidential level. You know, like if, you know, when we, and we can think a bit more about the primary, you know, is it Elizabeth Warren? Is it, you know, who actually has a shot and, and, and doing your, your internal debate? So, you know, Jeff, yes, I ran in a race, we were nine at the beginning. Two people dropped out at the very end, so we were seven um, towards the end. And it was difficult to distinguish ourselves um, but I also think it wasn't that difficult in the sense of, you know, I think by the end of it, people knew who I was. They knew that I was the scientist, the epidemiologist running. And my biggest challenge was the second piece. They said, you know, she's a first timer. She doesn't have, you know, millions and millions of dollars. And therefore there was this, the media was basically interpreting that as a lack of viability. And so I was not being covered in the way that other candidates was. And actually, this is something I'd like to point out on this station. It is so ironic that you have media coverage of just how much money people have. 
And so not only do they have money, then they get the free press on top of it. It would be like reports of this candidate is spending, you know, 600,000 on a TV ad. Okay, why do you need to make that a news story? Why aren't you writing about their ideas or their policies? So this is why I support ranked choice voting. I support this notion of, you know, allowing people to actually bet on the candidate they want to bet on. You know, I heard so many people saying, you know, you're the candidate I want, but I don't think you have a shot because you have less money and less, say, networks. Uh, but if, and then your response is, well, if you vote for me, then I have a shot. And they're like, but I don't want to waste my vote because I don't want this one out of the nine candidates. There's this one candidate I really don't want. And therefore I'm going to, you know, play, you know, hedge my bet. So yes, there's something about voter apathy because there's too many candidates, but there's also voter apathy because the candidate you want, you think you can't elect. So therefore you don't show up because you think it's not going to happen anyway. So or you feel so torn that you're voting for someone you don't want to vote for, and then the next election you feel more apathetic. So I've complicated things a little bit, but that's just to say that you know it is complicated. It is difficult when there's multiple candidates because people have to do their homework, but it's also a problem when there are not enough candidates because then you might not feel like any of the candidates represent you. So there's good and bad on both, both sides. Well, you've touched on what is probably mistake number one by the voters. I think mistake number one by the voters is not voting for the person that you really, really would like to have win, period, based on the qualifications, et cetera, rather than voting by foregone conclusion, that is, you know, or voting by affinity. Well, this is the person I think is going to win and I want to associate with the winner and therefore that's the way, you know, it's, it's, it's not a good reason to vote that way. But you're scared, Pete. Like, even in this, let's talk about the presidential race, right? Say mm-hmm. you really wanted to vote for the Green Party, but, you know, you're in a state where there's a chance that, say, you know, President Trump will be reelected, but you really don't want President Trump. You really want the Green Party, but then you choose to vote for, for Biden because right. you've decided that, you know, so that trade-off is real because we don't have ranked choice voting. Like, it is, and we'd expect that of people. You'd want them to think of the worst-case scenario while they're voting. So it's unfortunate, but I understand why people sometimes say, I'm not going to vote for my top candidate because I don't think they have a shot. And I really don't want this other candidate to win. So I don't, I don't blame the voters, mm-hmm. but I blame our system to some extent for not allowing that nuance. You know, I, I, I'm glad you, you brought up the ranked choice voting because I know we talked about it before um, we got on the air. And, you know, I... I'm just not convinced that um, voters here in Massachusetts are ready for ranked choice voting. Um, And, you know, that stems from my initial comments about uh, voter apathy and low turnout at, at these elections. And I feel that we have to build a system where people come to the polls because they want to come to the polls. And I'm afraid that uh, ranked choice voting will require so much in terms of complexity and understanding of the issues that it may uh, cause people to stay away from the polls because they say, well, I can't understand the ballot. I don't know uh, what goes into the ballot. That's, that's one of the fears I have. And the, and the second one is, um, what if a voter goes in it only chooses one candidate, and then their candidate uh, doesn't make it to the 50%, and then we go to the second round of voting. 
you've effectively nullified that person's vote because they only voted for one person and they probably do not realize that by not going through the process and ranking at least more than one of the candidates, they don't understand that essentially they're going to lose the opportunity to vote by making that conscious choice. I throw that out, but on the other hand, the, the worst situation that I saw um, by the lack of a ranked choice voting was the recall election for the mayor in Fall River. Now, 60% of the voters had decided that that mayor should be recalled. But on the same ballot, you had to elect who you thought should be the new mayor. So he gets recalled by 60%, but he gets, gets reelected because 35% <laughs> of the voters voted for him and he won the plurality. And the person who came in second got 33%. So, you know, I'm conflicted on this ranked choice voting, but I think I've highlighted what my concerns are and I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, I, I, I am just absolutely, uh, moving in the direction that ranked choice voting, albeit I agree with you, Jeff, needs us to be more uh, engaging in educating our population about their electoral responsibility. Uh, but at the same time, we have a system now that gets manipulated. Uh, and as a strategist, let me explain just the opposite of what you said around ranked choice voting, where if you have a choice, let's say, of ranking all seven candidates, one through seven, and you only choose one. You just say, boom, boom, okay? Uh, I am only going to vote for this candidate, uh, and I'm not going to vote for the others. You have, as you expressed, Jeff, effectively eliminated your vote in all of the other kinds of iterations then as you go down the line to try to find a majority. But you did that. And if the voter knows that I consciously did that, um, then, you know, you know, shame on them. Now, right now- Under our a, system, we don't need a majority. Under our system, right. it's a plurality. Right. The person who gets the most votes wins. So but, I'm but not in a right choice situation, But in a right choice situation, you're looking for a majority. You're trying to cobble together a majority then based upon those ranked choices. And that's where, you know, Natalia did an effective job on my head, <laughs> okay, by showing me that ranked choice voting is not what I thought it was. You are constantly taking the voters' opinions. And now what you're trying to do is take the voters and saying, okay, if this doesn't work to get a majority, what's your next iteration of that voter? And you're moving Dana down those ranks as people drop off, but it's only those voters who were impacted by the first drop off. And again, I don't want to get into the weeds on that now and stuff, but like I said, Dondalia has done a great job with me in terms of my research. And now I better understand and have moved much closer to, uh, you know, you know what, that might not be a bad system for us. But right now, here's one of the iterations, Jeff, that I as a strategist have even used. When you have, let's say, four candidates, uh, let's yeah, four candidates running for two seats, okay, which can happen when we get to our vote next year for town council, all of the town council members will be up for election, right? 
Mm -hmm. So if I've got eight votes that I have to distribute, I've got you have nine. Uh, okay, nine. I've got nine votes that I've got to distribute. Okay, there could be 13 candidates running. Now listen to this. If I vote for just one, that's I a have a that's a bullet vote. That's right. Yes, it is. <laughs> that's the term of art. That's right, Jeff. That's what we call it. I have effectively voted for that person how many times? Nine times. Nine times I've voted for that person because I have denied those other candidates a second, third, fourth, fifth, second, you know, none of those other candidates will get a vote. Only my candidate will get one vote. So that's nine less for them or eight less for them and nine for my one candidate. But that's how we, you know, and again, as a strategist, most people who go in, you know, they don't know bullet voting unless someone educates it to them. And I've run elections where I've educated the electorate okay, to go in and do just that. Okay. And then my candidate has a higher probability of winning. That's just the way we, you know, those of us can manipulate the system. So, uh, you know, again, which is one of the other things. I, 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 I wouldn't call it manipulating the system. I mean, that's a strategy and entirely not a manipulation. You, you have your choice. You can choose up to nine people. The fact that you choose only one, I would not categorize as a manipulation. That's your, your statement about what you want to happen with but, your vote. And you, you are free to choose how to exercise your right to vote. Let me throw this in. Millions of dollars have been spent on one side of that question. It, and the question was on the Massachusetts ballot. And all you heard was a point of view from one side. But the voters of Massachusetts significantly rejected the proposal. Why in the world are we still discussing ranked choice voting when, when the, the people realized after being bombarded with one point of view that this wasn't a good choice? How many times, Jeff, do we need the same issue on the con you know, to be on a ballot question? I would state. say and, and it's it's certainly worthy of discussion. Um, I, I think the the downfall of the ranked choice voting was because of a, a, you know a fear that it was too complex. Complexity, and, absolutely right, right, right. and, right. and that people were not ready for it. But that doesn't mean that ten years from now they won't be ready for it because we'll have an opportunity to talk about the pros and cons of, of ranked choice voting. And I think, you know, our conversation that we're having today is certainly highlighting some of the pros and cons. And I think it's a discussion that should go on uh, and on and on. I don't, I'm not saying let's put it on the ballot again in 2022, but I'm saying let's talk about how it works. I mean, Maine just for the first time in November of 2020 allowed ranked choice voting for the presidential election. Um, you know, so there's, there's some data out there. There's some experimentation out there. Let's see how it works and let's see whether it's, it's a, a good direction to go. In 2020, when I cast my ballot, I was not convinced 
that this was the way to go. But I'm not saying I'm foreclosing it for uh, discussion or consideration by me in years moving forward. But also, guys, you, you know, it, let me suggest too that the, that the statistics around valid questions, political scientists, uh, and you know this, Frank, uh, you, you know, when we look at as academics, um, how to get something passed or how to defeat it. Okay. There are certain premises that data shows will work for us. And here's the one that, you know, that I think applies in this instance. When something is complex, and even if one side is pushing it, the negative of that is more than likely to win out, more so than the positive. In other words, if you look at our history around ballot questions, knows when, uh, you know, the negative vote wins more times than the positive vote. There are a few sort of stunning uh, exceptions to that. Uh, for example, I can think the one about dog racing and stuff. Okay, that one was an anomaly, but that one had the humanitarian side in terms of banning dog racing. Mm -hmm. Okay, because there's a lot of dog lovers. So the positive actually was the negative. All right, I could argue that. Uh, but typically the negative wins because people are just not that willing to engage themselves uh, in terms of understanding complex issues in particular. That gets to the complexity issue, which, by the way, statistically, I would point out that the the 23-page document that was sent to voters along with ballots, et cetera, 2020 ballot questions, of that document, 23 pages, five pages are dedicated to ranked choice voting. So that's more than 20% of the document to that one single question both its summary and the full text of that legislation. Uh, I would not qualify that as the feel-good beach read of the summer. Yeah. Coming back to the uh, presidential uh, uh, elections, uh, does anyone else have a, a different point of view other than mine about going to uh, congressional uh, uh, districts and, and uh, making that, uh, instead of a, a statewide one to take all, do you have other other uh, discussion points uh, that you would like to propose? I can jump in. I, I mean, I like the idea of of making it more specific, more you know, closer the the sort of the geography. But then the question is, why aren't we going to popular vote? Do we still believe that the framing of you know some states outweighing? And I would say during this polarized, you know, climate, maybe it is of concern, but I do, you know, in the future, I do hope that we do go closer to a direct popular, direct democracy, a popular vote. And I'd like to hear those who think that that's a problem. And I think, Michael, you alluded that you're not right quite there yet. And I bring that up because I want us to think about generations, right? You know, what predicts whether someone will vote is whether they've voted in the past. And as we're trying to engage more new voters, you know, the, the recent 18-year-olds, because that, if we get them to vote at 18, they will be voters for life, if, if we believe that voting for life is a good thing, which I do. I do think that a lot of the younger folks want us to transition towards a popular vote and completely eliminate the electoral college. And is that something that you also are hearing among younger voters? Voters and and what what are they missing? I guess is a question to to those who are hesitant. Well, let's, I, 
Go ahead. I, I agree, Natalia, that, uh, you know, that, that something that approaches popular vote would be better, but I'm not convinced that the just the pure popular vote is the answer. I, I'm somewhere right between you and Frank. Uh, and as a matter of fact, Frank Frank's idea intrigues me. Uh, and if I could even, uh, you know, massage that a little more, you know, to have a presidential candidate, one, he has to win or she has to win uh, my congressional district. That's one. So you win my congressional district, you get you know, all of me and all of my neighbors in my in my congressional district have given you one vote. Then uh, I get another vote, though. Uh, uh, let's do this, because we also have the senators. So if you then win the popular vote for my state, that is all of my neighbors inside of my state, uh, then you get two more votes, you know, representing the two senators. So in essence, now I've got three votes. Uh, I've got my congressional vote. And I've got the uh, the two senators, so I've you know I've got to work at both levels. I I kind of gravitate toward that because it makes it more local. It makes it within the borders of my state. And here's why I think that is better than just a single popular vote, because then when you get to the popular vote, I in Massachusetts become one of 80 million. The difference between uh, what one candidate is going to win, even at 50% plus, let's say a half a percent, we're still talking about, mil, uh, you know, maybe about a million and a half, maybe a couple of million votes that's going to separate uh, those two candidates if it's just popular vote at the presidential level. And I've got no explanation for how I fare with my neighbors. In other words, it's not local politics anymore. I now have to decide, well, okay, California, which is the most populous state in, you know, in the country, you know, people are going to be looking at them first before they look at Massachusetts. All right. I mean, ultimately they'll get here because they need our numbers too. But I think Frank's idea uh, really, uh, you know, it, it's intriguing, uh, intriguing. And I think it has some merit to it. If you start to refine that down to how can I make people really look at this from a local perspective? And Natalie, you don't have to change the Constitution. You don't have to have a constitutional amendment. You don't have to have a constitutional convention. Uh, it, it, it is something that is low-hanging fruit. Would you call that, Pete? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, I'd, I'd also like to, what we have is this sort of disembodied, poorly defined in the public mind group of people, and what is their job? Uh, I also take some issue with the term, the, the somewhat presumably pejorative term, faithless electors. Um, in so far as we put together this group of electors. One of the things I was taught in school, rightly or wrongly, was that the role of the electors was to bring a reasoned perspective to that national election for the president and the leader of the free world. I can't recall any point in time when I have seen this. However, uh, and I point out that in the 2016 uh, race. There were 10 members of the Electoral College who voted or attempted to vote for a candidate different from the ones to whom they were pledged. Uh, three of those votes were invalidated under the faithless elector laws, uh, and uh, the elector either subsequently voted for the pledged candidate or was replaced by someone who did. 
There had been a combined total of 155 instances of individual electors voting supposedly faithlessly uh, prior to 2016. But 2016 was notable. Um, there were seven successfully cast faithless votes. The Democratic Party nominee Hillary Clinton lost five of her pledged electors. Uh, the Republican Party nominee Donald Trump lost two. So it inured to the benefit of Donald Trump by a net of three votes to have faithless electors, which begs the question, in the upcoming electoral college, will we see some increase in faithless electors biased towards the sitting president or vice versa? Uh, by the time this, of course, airs, I expect that in some airings of this program that will have come and gone. But it does beg the question of the role of the elector and the extent to which they are hamstrung by faith, by state laws that prohibit him from acting in what they believe to be good faith. I think that is going to be dependent upon the level and extent of the state law on that particular uh, mm. topic. So, um, you know, some of the states have laws that um, could disqualify that elector if they violated their pledge. And some states uh, actually uh, impose a fine for mm. an elector who fails to vote according to the uh, statewide or, or district popular vote. And uh, that was challenged at the United States Supreme Court. And the court said it is, uh, it is constitutional for states to enact this type of law. So um, we'll have to see how it flushes out. Um, I suspect that that will only occur in states that do not have those uh, rigid laws and fines imposed. But, uh, you know, I think upholding the, uh, the will of the people is probably the most important foundational element of this discussion. And, um, you know, really, really drives home the need to you know, pin your, uh, I don't want to say, uh, watch closely uh, what these uh, faithless electors do. I mean, it's a, it's a common uh, uh, scene out there. It's not something we talk about other than in the context of, uh, you know, a highly divided nation. That's, that's usually when these topics come up. So uh, I'm all for trying to bend to the will. And I certainly, I, I will count myself in the uh, people who are intrigued by Frank's suggestion. I'm going to look more closely at how Maine and Nebraska uh, have implemented their electoral system. But the closest we can get to uh, adhering to the will of the people is where I'd like to be. But that was not to, uh, the founding. Uh, uh, to the issue of toward a more perfect union. And, and, and that's, you know, I mean, I struggle all the time. And Jeff, you're in the position as a state representative to take a look at this probably better than any of us. Uh, and like I said, Frank, I, you know, I applaud you for what I think is some really progressive thinking, believe it or not. I mean, I think it's, it, it helps those of us like me who, uh, you know, I don't want my vote to be just a, you know, a drop in the ocean. 
uh, I want it to mean something. And if you can segment my little part of the ocean and say, hey, listen, if you and all of the rest of the other little pools of the ocean and stuff co congregate around this particular candidate or these issues, you can make a difference. And I think that's, uh, you know, the best we can hope for in a representative sense of uh, in a representative style government. As we're winding down, uh, do we have any uh, individual uh, comments that we uh, would like to bring forth? I want to well, follow up on Mike's uh, comment and uh, say that in this country, where elections are the foundation stone of democracy, when we begin to chip away at those stones and chip away at the foundation, we're actually chipping away at our democracy. So uh, that's not something that we should take lightly. No, I would definitely agree. And clearly we are seeing with the increased polarization of the two major parties, where it's, it's, there are times when it feels a little bit more like a death cage match. <laughs> you know, I would, I would, I would expect that people will bring more pressure to bear during presidential elections on the electors, be they faith, faithless or not. And, and that may in fact spur some encouragement to consider your proposal, Frank, as, as one potential way of making the air country a little bit more purple overall, rather than starkly red and starkly blue with the end effect, meaning uh, greater equity for any cast vote. And I just want to add that, you know, these reforms, whether we're talking about ranked choice, electoral college, your proposal, Frank, the bottom line should be how do we get voters to really feel that they are actually being represented, how they're being heard, and get more people like me or like Michael to run for office, you know, people who are not your typical politician. Uh, Jeff, I'm sorry, you, you fall into the category of more typical, you know, white male uh, but I'm making some assumptions about you, you know, so, but, you know, is there a way through these reforms? You've got to get to know me better. I know. <laughs> I, I enjoy these conversations so much. But, you know, how do we get more women, more immigrants, more, you know, people of color, people with diverse backgrounds to enter? And our systems are not designed to encourage uh, more diversity. And that, I think, leads to apathy, because if the voter doesn't feel that anybody out there represents them. That's a problem. So in all the reforms that we're talking about, whether we're talking, uh, you know, we've talked, we've only touched on a few. Let's keep that big picture in mind. You know, let's get more voters to vote and more people to run. I think that would be good for our democracy. Well, I think that wraps up the uh, program for today. And uh, this is uh, Frank Falvey, and we've been trying to bring a more perfect union and you can always help us by, uh, Pete, how can they help us? They can write uh, with questions, information, suggestions for future programs, and any concerns to info at wfpr.fm. That's info at wfpr.fm. You can also call 508-528-9377. That's 508-528-WFPR. We'll look forward to hearing from you.